If you're with us for the first time or this is the first couple of times you've been to Harbin's, you may be wondering exactly how we do things here. We normally preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We believe that's the most biblical way to preach. But sometimes we do that on smaller passages of Scripture and other times we will take larger sections of Scripture. And for the summer, we're doing 12 overview sermons over the 12 minor prophets. So it's one sermon for each minor prophet. Today we're in the book of Habakkuk. So please turn there if you would. We're going to focus in on one specific verse this morning to start off with, but I'm going to be preaching from the whole book. So keep the book open. Now, quick word about Habakkuk here. As you look for Habakkuk in your Bibles, you may have a hard time finding him. He's uh, I don't think it's one of the, the passages or one of the books of the Bible that a lot of people refer to. He is the prophet with the funny name, Habakkuk. Uh, he's from Judah. Um, we don't know a whole lot about Habakkuk. It seems that he prophesied sometime in the mid to late 7th century B.C. He prophesied after the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, Israel had been broken into two kingdoms, the northern tribes, which called themselves Israel, the southern tribes, which called themselves Judah. The northern tribes had, by the time Habakkuk is prophesying, had fallen to Assyria. But Assyria itself was losing its power, and there's a new world power coming onto the scene, a kingdom by the name of Babylon. And so Habakkuk is prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah. The passage I want us to turn to this morning is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Go ahead and turn there. And uh, that'll be the verse we start off with. And I believe it is the most important verse in this entire book. Matter of fact, I believe it is the central verse of the whole book. Let me explain why real quick here. And I'll come back to it. It's on the screen there. I want you to see this before we read this verse. The book of Habakkuk, it breaks down like this. It's in a chiasm. The structure of it builds to a point. And that point is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. It starts with a complaint that Habakkuk will have, which we'll read about in a little bit. Then God's response. Then Habakkuk has a second complaint. Then Habakkuk awaits God's response. And then God announces that he will respond and calls for faith, which is what we're going to look at here. Verse 4 of chapter 2 is the centermost verse of the whole book. It is what the whole book is leading to. And it's what the rest of the book builds off of. Then we have God's response, Habakkuk's worship, and then Habakkuk chooses to live by faith at the very end of the book. So that's the structure of the book. That's why I want us to focus in on this one verse. So stand with me, if you would, as we read just this one verse, Habakkuk 2, verse 4. This is a very famous verse. In this verse, Habakkuk is contrasting, or God is contrasting the unrighteous and the righteous. And he says this. Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you can pack more theological dynamite in just a few words than any of us could try to do in mountains of volumes of things that we could write. So God, our hope this morning is in your word. Your word does not return void. Your word has the power. Your word never fails. We fail, but your word doesn't. So God, give us ears to hear. Give our failing ears the ability to hear your word this morning. And Lord, give my failing mouth the ability to speak it this morning. We're totally dependent upon your mercy and your grace 
to enable us to hear your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Kids, have any of you ever been to a fun house? Uh, at like an amusement park or something like that? Do you know what I'm talking about? A fun house? Anybody? All right. You've been to a fun house. As a matter of fact, when I thought of this illustration, I immediately thought of the fun house at Silver Dollar City in Branson, Missouri. The best fun house I've ever been to. It's called Grandfather's Mansion. You walk into Grandfather's Mansion and immediately you're kind of thrown for a loop. Everything just seems off kilter. If you've been in a fun house, there's strange things in there. Things don't seem normal. Uh, up seems to be down and right seems to be left. And um, you go in there in Grandfather's Mansion, there's this pool table that's, that's sitting at this angle, yet the balls are rolling backwards into the other pockets. And then you go into another room, and all the furniture seems to be straight, but as you're standing, you realize you're standing crooked, and it's just, you're, all your sensors are thrown for a loop in one of these fun houses. You get disoriented, you get confused, maybe even you get a little bit frustrated, because nothing seems to be what it's supposed to be. You know, I think that our world is kind of like that today. Perhaps we feel like we're in a fun house that isn't all that fun. We look around and we see that our world is crazy. Everything seems upside down. Right is wrong and wrong is right. Everything seems to be askew. It seems to be going wacko. It seems like the world is losing its mind. How are we to react and to live in a world like this? I think immediately we begin to have questions. Why is this stuff happening? Why, why do things like this happen in our world? Does God not see all the craziness going on? Does he not see the people who are, who are the wicked who are being praised and yet the righteous who are being mocked? Does he not see all of these things? Does God not care? Well, Habakkuk wondered these things as well. His world was just like our world, perhaps even worse. And thus, his prophecy here begins with an honest complaint to God. It begins with an honest complaint to God in verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Perhaps some of you feel like Habakkuk. You look around and you see the violence of our world. You see the craziness, the sin that's running rampant in our world. And you wonder, God, do you not see what's happening here? Habakkuk is prophesying in Judah. Okay, and, and this is either near the end or after the reign of Josiah, who was a good king in Judah and had brought in great reforms. But by the end of Josiah's reign, especially after Josiah's reign, those reforms began to fade away and the people yet again began to stray from God's law. And now violence and injustice were again engulfing the nation. For those who love God, and love God's word and love God's law, the sinful situation around them was suffocating. It was distressing. Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? What a bold complaint that Habakkuk is, 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 is saying here. Habakkuk can't stand to see iniquity. He can't stand to see the sin that's all around him. The, the sin was so pervasive that he couldn't help but see it. We certainly live in a day like that, don't we? That, that you can't walk through this world without seeing sin, without it being put in your face. And so that's how Habakkuk feels. But he wonders why God sees it and does nothing. Now to be sure, Habakkuk here is not questioning God's character. 
He's not questioning God's holiness or God's justice, but instead he has a strong belief in God's righteous nature, and that's what's leading him to complain. He, he wonders how a holy God can look at a sinful world and not do anything. Only those who really believe in a just and holy God can actually ask the question, why, when the world's going as crazy as it is. Only someone who really believes in the holiness and justice of a true God can ask that question. The atheist can't ask the question, why? When the world begins to go crazy around them, they can't ask the question, why? Because the question, why, presupposes that there's some design behind all of this. So they can't ask why. And the person who's just a theist, who just thinks that God just wound up the world and let it go and is this absent landlord type of God, they can't ask why either. Because God doesn't... God doesn't have anything to do with the world. Only people who truly believe in a holy and just and sovereign God who is intimately involved in the affairs of man can ask this question that Habakkuk is asking. Why? So Habakkuk here is honestly wondering why God is allowing this to happen. He says, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Verse 4. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. We lose in our English a lot of the poetic parallelism that Habakkuk uses when he says that justice is paralyzed and it can't go anywhere. Yet then he says it does go forth, only it goes forth in a perverted fashion. How is that happening? Well, it's the wicked are the ones who seem to be in control. They're surrounding the righteous. The justice that's being implemented isn't justice for the sake of of the righteous, but justice that's perverted, that's giving the the wicked an upper hand. I think of just this past week as I've been amazed at, um, many of you guys have seen the clips on, perhaps on Facebook, especially if you're a friend with Peter or whatever. You've seen this evangelist who many in here know named Tony Miano, who was at Wimbledon preaching the gospel, simply preaching, I believe from 1 Thessalonians, is that where he was preaching from? Simply reading the text of Scripture that lists out a bunch of sins, and because the sin of homosexuality was in that list of sins, as he read, he was handcuffed and taken away, the wicked suppressing the righteous. It's happening in our day. It seems to be increasingly true in our world and in our nation. Like we're in some sort of fun house where everything is upside down. The wicked are called righteous and the righteous are called wicked. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter is what the prophet Isaiah said. It seems that we like Habakkuk are living in a moral free-for-all. In a moral fun house that really isn't all that fun. So that's Habakkuk's complaint. He starts off with a complaint. And it's aimed at his own nation, Judah. Habakkuk wants to know why God isn't dealing with the sins of Judah, his own nation. Well, God responds, and he responds in verse 5. Verse 5 says, this is the Lord speaking now. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. So here's God responding. And he says, oh, I see it. And I'm going to deal with it. The problem is you won't believe or won't like what it is that I have planned. You're not going to like what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to use a Gentile nation to judge my people. 
an unbelieving Gentile nation to judge his people. It's interesting that Paul quotes this passage in Acts chapter 13 as he's preaching to the Jews. And as they continue to reject the gospel, he quotes this Habakkuk 1.5. Because once again, God is going to set his people aside and use the Gentiles to bring forth his work. Verse 6, he says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, or the Chaldeans. Who are the Chaldeans? They are the Babylonians. And God, anticipating Habakkuk's complaint that he's going to have his second complaint that's coming, acknowledges that the Babylonians were not good people. He goes on to say in verse 6, That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So they're greedy. They steal the thieves. Verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They are their own determiners of right and wrong. Their justice isn't coming from God. Their justice comes from themselves. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. And my friends, pride, pride was the main sin of the Babylonians. But it goes on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. They were a powerful people, and they were a merciless people. And then verse 10 says, At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up the earth to take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. These were guilty men. These were evil men. Proud, boastful, arrogant. We'll see it on display. If you go to Daniel chapter 4, you see this pride and arrogance on display with the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. You remember this passage, Nebuchadnezzar's proud. He looks at his kingdom, gives himself all the credit, basically calls himself a god. And God humbles him. God puts him in a field like an animal and humbles him. And then I believe through that process saves Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar comes back and then gives glory to the one rightful true God. And so this people of Babylon were a proud, self-worshipping people. So this leaves Habakkuk a bit perplexed. Perhaps it leaves us a bit perplexed too. God is going to punish the wickedness of Judah by means of a nation that is even more wicked. In essence, God is saying, in order to deal with the sin of Judah, I'm going to let the sin of Babylon run rampant. The cure seems to be worse than the ailment. You know, um, back when I first planted the church, I, I, I began to get an ailment. It still sticks with me every now and then called vertigo. During times when I'm stressed out or overweight, which is all the time, I begin to get dizzy. And I remember going to the doctors and they'd give me these different medicines to take to deal with my vertigo. And I, then I'd look at the list of side effects. And they have all these side effects that the lawyers require them to put on there. And of course the first one is nausea and dizziness. How do I know what I'm going through? As a matter of fact, I would take these medicines and I'd feel worse. I'd feel more nauseous. I'd still be dizzy. The cure was worse than the ailment half the time. I'm sure that's how... Habakkuk feels, so the world is spinning out of control and you're going to send the Babylonians? Are you kidding me? But God can use evil nations for good and holy purposes. Friends, we must see that God rules nations. Politics bows before the purposes of God. 
That's why I say, don't get so worked up about politics. Don't fret elections. Fight for the truth. Vote the way you should vote. Stand for what you should stand up for. But in the end, when it seems that unbelief and wickedness and sin continue to prevail, know that God is the God who changes times and seasons. He removes rulers. He sets up rulers. The righteous don't live by victory in the political arena. The righteous live by faith. Faith in a God who rules the rulers of the world. It's not hard to imagine how Habakkuk feels. We can kind of put it in our context. People are praying all across this nation for for revival, for godliness to come upon our nation. People feel like Habakkuk. Things are upside down. What if God were to send the most vile and wicked and idolatrous terrorists just to bring us down? Would you feel that that was a good answer to your prayers? That's how God was answering Habakkuk's prayers. That might be how God answers the prayers in our nation today. All I know is that God is sovereign. So Habakkuk now has a new complaint, and it begins in verse 12. So he has a new complaint now. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Now there's a hint there when he says we shall not die of of what's to come. He has faith. That God is not going to destroy the righteous. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Again, Habakkuk complains because he knows of the holiness of God. Not because he's questioning it. He goes on in verse 13. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And now Habakkuk, in verse 15, begins to complain specifically about Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 15. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk doesn't understand. Why would God use such a wicked nation? And with that, Habakkuk, like he's some sort of debater in some sort of debate with God, steps aside to give God a chance for his rebuttal. says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower... And look out to see what he will say to me. I'm going to wait and see what God has to say to me. And look at the boldness here. The rest of verse 2. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. So he's like a debater. I'm going to give God his five minutes now. And then I'm going to speak up again. It's basically what he's saying. And so ends the first half of the book. If you remember the structure. This is where the first half of the book ends. And so now God's about to show how it is that he plans on dealing with the crazy, topsy-turvy funhouse that this world has become. How can one live in this not-so-fun house anymore? God's going to show you how you live in this world. You live by faith. Habakkuk 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. 
It will surely come. It will not delay. God is saying right here, I'm going to give you a reliable word. Listen. And the Lord begins to speak now his word, his response to Habakkuk. And he's telling Habakkuk in these first few verses of chapter 2 that it's a reliable word. It's rock solid. So then we have chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the thesis statement for everything he's about to say. Habakkuk, you're, you're going nuts. You're upset about all this stuff. Don't worry, I'm going to deal with the prideful, the puffed up one. His soul's not right. I'm going to deal with him. You, righteous, live by faith. Trust in what I'm doing. So now there's two main parts left in this book. There's the remainder of God's response to Habakkuk, which involves a taunt and some woes pronounced upon Babylon. And then there's Habakkuk's response to the word that God speaks. And out of these final two portions of the book, I'm going to give you the three points that are in your notes. And here's the first one. The righteous rest in the perfect justice of God. The righteous rest in the perfect justice of God. God's response to Habakkuk begins with a description of the prideful man. The prideful man is the king of his own universe. He disregards God and makes himself God. It's the same cancer that entered the human race at the fall that all men possess. Verse 5. Moreover, wine, and it may be translated wealth in your Bible, wine is a traitor. In other words, his hope is in his wealth. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all as his own, all peoples. And that's the Babylonians. That's what they were like. They were arrogant. They didn't have enough. They wanted more to to, to please themselves, to, to pump up their ego. They were simply more powerful versions of the people who were already in Judah. At the heart of the matter, they were no different. Pride and arrogant self-worship is at the heart of all sin. But God goes on to demonstrate that he's going to judge the pride and arrogance of both Judah and eventually Babylon as well. God was not going to overlook the sins of the Babylonians or the Judeans or the Americans or the Iraqis or each and every single person who makes up each and every nation. God does not overlook your sin. What we will see in the remainder of chapter 2 is the pronouncement of five prophetic woes against Babylon. So we're going to walk through these. God is is now pronouncing his judgment that's going to come upon Babylon. Verse 6 of chapter 2. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe. So this is a prophetic woe. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. So the first woe of judgment pronounced upon Babylon is due to their greed and their violence. The Babylonians, like the Assyrians before them, were very violent people. When they invaded and took over a land, they committed terrible atrocities. And this is what God was going to judge. But he goes on, verse 9. Woe, 
Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. You see, in their greed, they had created for themselves a false security. They had built up great buildings of stone and wood, but it was crying out against them because they were self-assured, they were self-confident. They were prideful and arrogant. They worshipped themselves. Needless to say, the Babylonians didn't have a problem with self-esteem. I heard a psychologist recently say, and a Christian psychologist said that, the way we deal with bullies in school is to help them with their self-esteem. Bullies don't need any help with self-esteem. They esteem themselves too much. Bullies need to esteem something greater than themselves. Babylon was a bully. Babylon didn't have a problem with its self-esteem. What Babylon had a problem with was that it didn't esteem God. He goes on in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. So the fabric of their society was built upon sin, bloodshed. So is ours. The blood of 55 million innocents runs in the streets of our nation. Verse 13, behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? God reminds Habakkuk with these words that he again is the ruler of rulers. He is working all the geopolitical schemes of men together for his good purposes. And so it's at this point, at the peak of these prophetic woes that we have this glorious eschatological promise that comes out of the text in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I've been talking about doing this for like seven months. So little parentheses here. If somebody in church will do this, here's what I want you to do. I want a map with this verse above it. And I want to put pinpoints out there where we see God doing work through our church all across the globe. So I want a pin in there when Richie lands in India. Someone make that map for me and get it back there, all right? Or I'll do it later. God rules the nations, and his glory will cover like the waters cover the sea. But the woes continue. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You see, the Babylonians were experts at shaming the nations they conquered. They would lead away the captives with hooks in their noses and relegate them to animals to pray. And they would oftentimes do that with the officials or all the people stripped naked as they led them out of their cities. They would shame the people. Shame is a powerful tool in the hands of the wicked. But it does not go unnoticed by God. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. As will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. The Lord has one final woe to pronounce upon Babylon, and it's because of their idolatry. Verse 18, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. 
Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. So God was going to bring judgment upon them for their idolatry. And perhaps we live in a world that considers itself much more sophisticated than the Babylonian day. We no longer carve idols out of wood and stone and gold. No, we just decide to shape God into the image that we want him to be in. And have our own idols of our hearts and our minds. The God whom Habakkuk had accused of sitting idly by, ignoring sin, had not been ignoring it. He hadn't failed to see the sin of Babylon or Judah. He doesn't fail to see the sin of America or Iraq or any nation on this world. God sees it all. He takes it all into account. No sin can go unnoticed by God and no sin can go unpunished by God. In the light of God's pronouncement of his justice, we read these words in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. God is still ruling. He is in his holy temple. He is the sovereign judge. And before the sovereign judge of the universe, does anyone have anything to say? Habakkuk has just been moved from the debate hall into the courtroom. Earlier, Habakkuk had been prepared to give a response. You remember? I look to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. But now he's just going to shut his mouth. He's just going to rest in the perfect justice of God. God has shown that he is holy, that he is just, and that he is sovereign. So what else needs to be said? So Habakkuk has no rebuttal. He's like Job in Job chapter 40. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand upon my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Oh, how many people need to follow Job's advice and just put their hand over their mouth. Especially when we look at this book and we read clearly what God says about his sovereignty, about his rule, and then we try to somehow explain it away. Put your hand over your mouth. To live by faith is to rest in the fact that God is sovereign and just. And so now Habakkuk, he responds the way that anyone should respond who's been exposed to such a revelation about the justice of God. He responds with worship. All worship is is revelation and response. When people ask me, give me a definition of worship. That's it. Revelation and response. He's seen this revelation of who God is. And so he responds. And we move on to chapter 3, which is a psalm. It's a psalm. It's a prayer psalm that Habakkuk has written. It says, verse 1 of chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigianoth. Now, I don't know what a Shigianoth is. All I know is it's probably a liturgical term referring to a musical instrument. And this is structured in the fashion of a psalm. So we know that this is a psalm that Habakkuk is singing to the Lord as he prays this. And so how does he respond when the justice of God is on display? He worships. There's no more room for complaining. And so we read, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 3. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So the next thing I want us to see is this. Number two, the righteous believe in the mighty works of God. 
The righteous believe in the mighty works of God. This psalm that he's about to sing is a, is a poetic a collection of hyperbole and anthropomorphisms that, that's supposed to draw the hearer's minds to the mighty works that God has already done for his people in the past. When he's acted as their divine warrior in the past. So we read in verse 3, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. This is a reminder of Sinai where God revealed himself to his people in terrible fashion, in a terrifying fashion. Yet it, it was even during that revelation that he was veiling himself. Verse 5, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. This brings remembrance not only of the exodus, but of God's deliverance of his people from the savage wilderness nations as they trekked toward the promised land. So God has been a mighty warrior on behalf of his people. He's demonstrated his sovereign power also over nature. Verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. This calls to mind for those who know of God's mighty works how he had delivered his people over and over again and had done so by his mighty demonstrations over bodies of water. He turned the Nile River to blood. He split the Red Sea and let them pass on dry land and then he stopped the flow of the Jordan so the people could cross into the promised land. Even the sun and the moon obeyed the warrior God that Israel was trusting. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. So the sun and the moon stand still. What does that remind you of? That's when Joshua crossed into the promised land and fought those who were in the promised land. God was marching out on behalf of his people. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Habakkuk is drawing to mind all these images, all these remembrances of what God had done for his people. And so Habakkuk rests on the sovereign justice of God. And Habakkuk remembers and believes in the mighty works of God. But in light of God's justice and in light of God's might, Habakkuk also had to do this. Number three, the righteous hope in the unmerited mercy of God. Look back at the beginning of this psalm, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. He fears the work. The might of God causes him to tremble. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. And then he says this. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Folks, there's only one place that that verse could be fulfilled. Because Habakkuk knew, 
as we should know, that we are unrighteous before God and we deserve that mighty warrior God coming down on our head. And so we beg him, in your wrath, remember mercy. But God doesn't just overlook sin. There's only one place where his wrath was fully poured out and the mercy was fully poured out as well upon his people. And that's at the cross. We can stand there under the judgment of God solely because Christ has absorbed for us the wrath of God for all who believe. This plea is for undeserved, unmerited mercy. For if Habakkuk really believes all that he's spoken about God, if he really believes that God has spoken about himself, if he really believes, if he really has faith that these things are true, then he knows he has a problem because he's already confessed in verse 13 of chapter 1 that God has eyes that are purer than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Habakkuk knows that he's a sinner and that he lives among sinful people. Surely fear has filled his heart because of this. We read in verse 16 of chapter 3. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He submits to God's holy, righteous wrath against Judah and against Babylon. And in the midst of that oncoming judgment, he trusts God to somehow save him. Save me. He knows that God is sovereign And a just judge, he knows that God has done mighty acts, he's a mighty warrior, but he believes that somehow God will work on his behalf and show him mercy. And I think it's at this moment that the words from chapter 2, verse 4, begin to burst with meaning to Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous, but before such a God, a just and holy God, a sovereign God, who is righteous? Perhaps it's at this moment that it becomes crystal clear to Habakkuk that he needs an alien righteousness. He needs a righteousness that's not his own, a righteousness credited to him by another. The righteousness received by faith, a righteousness spoken of in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 about Abraham when we read this. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as what? Righteousness. That was the righteousness that God was saying was characteristic of the one who had faith. I can only speculate as Habakkuk continues to meditate upon these verses, this verse here, chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. I can only speculate that perhaps God begins to bring to Habakkuk's mind the words of Isaiah the prophet who had prophesied years before Habakkuk. These words in Isaiah 53, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's talking about Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous as he shall bear their iniquities. I can only imagine that these verses, these other passages of Scripture are beginning to to come to light in Habakkuk's mind as he thinks about why God has told him that the righteous shall live by his faith. Namely, those who live by faith are giving a righteousness that they did not earn. They did not merit. In other words, in this passage today, we're reading about justification before a holy God. We don't have to wonder if this is what God meant. People will come back to you and say, no, 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 no. You're taking that verse out of context. My friend, I'm not taking that verse out of context. If I'm taking it out of context, then so did Paul and the author of Hebrews. 
The way I know that this verse, the righteous shall live by his faith, is a verse about us being justified before a holy God is because the New Testament tells me that's what it means. Paul quotes this exact verse, Habakkuk 2.4, when he sets in place the massive theological thesis statement of his letter to the Romans. Romans 1, I'll begin in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And here it is, verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then Paul goes on from that point. That's his theological launch pad for the letter of Romans. And it takes flight into the glorious truths of the gospel that proclaim that man is justified before God by grace alone, received by faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Hallelujah. That's what the scriptures teach us Habakkuk 2.4 is all about. That's what Paul says Habakkuk 2.4 means. And if I'm right, that Habakkuk 2.4 is the theological center point of the book of Habakkuk, that means that the book of Habakkuk is all about Jesus. As every minor prophet has been that we've read. It's all about Jesus. It's all been about Jesus. Now surely Habakkuk couldn't fully see how God was going to do this, but he had faith. He had faith. He's like those we read of in, in Hebrews 11. He looked for it. He couldn't see all the promise. He didn't know how all was going to happen, but he had faith. He believed in a just God who does mighty works to save his people. We read in 1 Peter 1.10 that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. Friends, Habakkuk was serving you. Habakkuk complained to God on your behalf and got an answer that you need to hear. He was serving you. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. My friend, what Habakkuk couldn't fully see but accepted by looking forward in faith, we can clearly see by looking back in faith to the cross. Our only hope for salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Just as Habakkuk in his psalm of prayer and praise recounts the mighty works of God, we too come here today to recount the mightiest work of all, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We recall that mighty act that God did on behalf of sinners, reconciling them to himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I have a word to conclude our message today, a word for unbelievers that are here this morning, and a word for believers. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You're, maybe you just came here, someone invited you. A word for unbelievers, listen to me. If you will listen today, you must hear who you are in chapter 2, verse 4. You're the soul that's puffed up by your own self-sufficiency. Convinced that you can merit God's favor, that you deserve heaven. Maybe you think you've kept enough of God's laws to earn your way into heaven. As if God's justice hinges as some sort of cosmic scale with the good outweighing the bad. Well, Paul uses Habakkuk 2.4 again to crush that thought. This time he does it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. 
he says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Again, he quotes Habakkuk 2, 4. And then we read Paul in Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I love, that's one of my favorite verses. He is the just, he is a righteous, just judge. Friends, unbeliever, you've got to believe that. God is a just judge. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. You will face a just judge. But you do not have a case before that just judge. Your church attendance, your good deeds, your clean living, however many little old ladies you helped cross the road, however many Girl Scout cookies you bought, it does not matter. You do not have a case before a just judge. The only thing that will count on that day is faith in Christ and Christ's finished work alone. Faith in what he has done. And therefore, he becomes not only the just but the justifier of those who have faith. And mind you, Christ is coming back. Hebrews 9 continues that he says that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. And I might add, friends, he will come to vanquish those who have not been eagerly awaiting him. Our salvation is in him alone. We eagerly wait. We have faith. But for those who do not have faith, he is not coming back to save. He's coming back as a warrior with righteous wrath against sin. To vanquish sin and sinners once for all. Unbeliever, let me just finish with this for you. Apart from Christ, you will die. But the righteous will live by faith. But a word for believers too here this morning. For those in here who claim to be believers at least, we need to pay attention to this Habakkuk 2.4. We need to pay attention to it closely. For the text says the righteous shall live by faith. Live, my friends. To the Hebrew, faith was never just a mental assent to the truths about God. There was always an ethical component to it. Meaning that truly righteous people now live in a radically different way. Righteous people who have been justified by faith live in radically different ways, radically dependent upon God. They continue to live depending upon God in faith. The scriptures know nothing of a faith that is simply a rational, cognitive agreement to some doctrinal facts. True faith is accompanied by true repentance that produces true works for the true glory of God. The righteous shall live by faith, not just profess faith or acknowledge faith or agree with faith. He lives by his faith. But is that what God meant here when he spoke to Habakkuk? You may accuse me again. Hey, you're taking Habakkuk out of context. No, this time I've got the author of Hebrews on my side. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 
For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The righteous lives by faith. There will be many, many a Christian who will be disappointed on that day that Christ returns. First, let me say that they weren't truly a Christian if they're going to be disappointed on that day. But there will be many who call themselves Christians who will be disappointed on that day. Because they think they've boiled faith down to, oh yeah, I can repeat that prayer. Cool. All right. I'm in heaven now. That's awesome. I'll go back to living with my girlfriend over here. That's not faith. That's just a different version of the puffed up pride that the Babylonians had. But we, verse 39 of Hebrews 10, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. So unbeliever, put your hope in Christ this morning by faith and find life. And believer, rest in Christ this morning by faith and persevere in life. Only when you have faith in Christ can you truly live. And I mean truly live. It'll change your life. Look at how it changed Habakkuk. He begins as a complainer, as a warrior, having a hard time finding his bearings in this upside down world. But he ends with his feet firmly planted by faith on the rock of his salvation. Look at verse 17. Though the fig trees should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. That's the faith of Habakkuk. You want to translate that in modern language? Though all my health and wealth disappears, I won't lose my faith in the Lord, and I'll continue to rejoice in Him. The New York Times best-selling Christian authors of our day will tell you that if you have enough faith, life will go well for you. But the Bible says that faith is what carries you when nothing goes well for you. Matter of fact, true faith is the key to true and lasting joy. That's because Habakkuk's faith wasn't aimed at his best life now. He had eyes of faith and saw from a distance a celestial city, a better country, a heavenly one. And so he lived by faith. So how about you? And how about me in this topsy-turvy world? Are you questioning God? Or do you have your feet like the deer's, steady and strong, with eyes of faith, looking to heaven, resting on the justice of God, believing in the works of God, hoping in the mercy of God? That's where your sure footing is. It changes the way you live. My friends, if we have the faith in the justice of God, well, then we don't have to get worked up when our political candidate doesn't win. I'm just going to have joy anyway because my God rules. When you have faith like Habakkuk's here and you get diagnosed with cancer, you know, hey, my God's sovereign over the cancer. I wonder why he gave it to me. What can I do with that? How's God going to use that? But that's not how most live who call themselves Christians. We walk by whining and complaining and moaning 
Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we realize how foolish we are. We're like Habakkuk at the beginning of this book. We think we can complain to you and somehow, as if we're in some sort of debate with you, demonstrate that you're not running the world right. But God, forgive us of our foolishness, of our pride, of our self-sufficiency. And Lord, help us to see that you are still in your holy temple. We see your justice. We see your might. We see your holiness. We see your sovereignty. And let us put our hands over our mouths and rest. And just live by faith. Oh, Father, Christians, true Christians should be the most rested and peaceful people in the world. Even when we see the injustices of our society, when we see wickedness prevailing, God, help us to rest in you. Help us to be faithful, to spread the word of the gospel, that people can be reconciled to God, that God does have a solution for their unrighteous behavior, for their unrighteous soul. And that solution is the blood of his own son that he shed for all for all who would call on him, for all who would put their faith in him. So in my prayer this morning for those in here who maybe have never put their faith in Christ, maybe they've joined a church, maybe they shook a minister's hand, came forward, signed a prayer card, did something, they got their name on a list, but they've never lived faith like Habakkuk is speaking of here. God, I pray, Lord, that you would draw their heart to you this morning. May they desire this joy, this overwhelming joy that Habakkuk has at the end of this book. It's a joy that can't be broken. It can't be smothered. It's a joy that we have even when we're being sawn in two for our faith. So God, we praise you and we thank you for who you are, for what you're doing in this world. God, I don't know what you're doing in America. It seems a bit topsy-turvy to me right now. But God, I trust you're in control. And God, I just pray that Harbin's will be faithful. When people are telling us that our message doesn't need to be heard, they're telling us to shut up. Oh God, may we fear you more than we fear men. God, we pray, Lord, you guide us and guard us now as we continue in our worship, as we sing this closing song to you, Lord. As we bring our tithes, our offerings, our prayer requests, Lord, may it all honor you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.